The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, after all the years of you and I doing this show, I cannot believe that here we are yet again going to do another show on the Sri Lankan debt trap narrative. Now, for those of you who are familiar with our archives, we've done this show a number of times before in the past. But yet here we are again, in part because this is such a durable story, and in part because also it's back in the news in a number of different ways. So last week, the Chinese foreign ministry started raising the issue quite a bit. We first heard it at one of the press briefings in Beijing that was hosted by Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian. He's the OG wolf warrior, for those of you who are not familiar with him. He was asked a question by a Chinese journalist, and you can hear in the way that the journalist is going to ask the question, I'm going to play you the sound, how rehearsed everything is at these press briefings in Beijing. She's literally reading from a script in what we can only assume is a planted or orchestrated or choreographed question. But let's first take a listen to the question, and that really speaks to some of the key issues that we're going to talk about today. Sri Lankan Foreign Minister Ali Sabri recently said that China respects the requests of Sri Lanka and has never forced Sri Lanka to take loans from China. China has provided many financial support and humanitarian assistance in various ways for Sri Lanka. And the so-called debt trap is only a Western narrative. He also said that China has always been a close friend and the two countries jointly celebrate the Rubber Rice Pact anniversary. What is your comment? We welcome the statement by Foreign Minister Ali Sabri. His remarks serve as a strong rebuttal to the unfounded narrative of China's debt trap in Sri Lanka for some time. I would like to reiterate that China never attaches political conditions. Okay, so his answer is actually not that interesting here. There's one really important point that I want to bring up to you, is the Chinese continually frame this issue around Western narratives, and you heard that in the question. Zhao also used that in his response. Really, really important to emphasize that the debt trap narrative was not invented by the West, and today it's no longer its main propagator. It was invented by Indian pundit Brahma Chalani in 2017. And if you do a search on YouTube for Sri Lanka debt trap, you're going to see 99% of the references are Indian media references. So really important there. That being said, the issue came back up again just a few days later last week when then Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning, she responded to questions about the debt restructuring process that's underway. Now, for those of you who have not been following this, there is a massive economic crisis that is unfolding in Sri Lanka and that has been underway for about a year now. It's a political crisis. It's a financial crisis. It's just an all-around 
Just terrible situation there. Unlike some other developing countries like Zambia and even Angola and Chad, where there has been a debt restructuring process, there's been very, very little movement on restructuring Sri Lanka's $37.6 billion external debt. That being said, we got word from the Chinese foreign ministry that they are going to allow for the cooperation and support the cooperation of international financial institutions. And the headline on Xinhua came out as China calls for joint efforts to ease Sri Lanka's debt burden. Now, that headline on Xinhua is very important because a lot of people have been seeing China as the main stumbling block in getting to an IMF deal that will then pave the way for the creditor committee to get together, and that's all of the major external creditors, to sort something out. Now, Cobus, the problem with this creditor committee, if it gets formed, I don't think it's formed yet, but unlike in Zambia, where it was basically private bondholders and the Chinese, in Sri Lanka, we have a situation where it's the Japanese, the Indians, and the Chinese who would be on this creditor committee. Now, for those of you who don't follow politics here in Asia, those three countries do not get along with each other at all, specifically the Chinese and the Japanese and the Chinese and the Indians. So reaching some kind of consensus among those creditors is going to be very, very difficult. So the fact that China is signaling that it's okay for everybody to work together could be interpreted as a very important breakthrough on this. So, Kobus, that is the background of the situation. One of the hallmarks of Sri Lanka of course, is the port of Ambandota. And that has stood up as the poster child for the debt trap narrative that has now been so durable in India, also in the West. We still see it pop up quite a bit. Why do you think this particular narrative has been so persistent, despite the fact that there's been so much evidence, including that from the researchers we're going to speak with today, that refutes the allegation? I think there's something very concrete about the idea that you, you take out a big loan and then if you can't pay it, then they come and take your port. There's something about it that seems to make sense from people's experiences with domestic debt. And it just sounds like something that would be correct. The problem is, is that it isn't correct and that the discussion around it has obscured so many other problems that we see in relation to lending in the global south and particularly now as we see a kind of a, a series of kind of debt distress incidents starting to kind of sweep across the global south it's more important than ever to actually talk in realistic terms about what these issues are but you know kind of the problem is is that you're either someone who is deeply interested in these issues and following them and therefore like okay with all of the acronyms and all of the technicalities or you're not in which case you're kind of sitting duck for these kind of like oversimplified narratives that end up sounding like they make sense but actually don't make sense well if you have an inkling of doubt as to whether or not the debt trap narrative as it's been framed in sri lanka about the port of ambandota is true or might be true, then you're going to want to listen to our conversation today and you're going to want to read the new report from the China Africa Research Initiative that published a brand new fascinating report called Evolution of Chinese Lending to Sri Lanka Since the Mid-2000s, Separating Myth from Reality, again published by Kerry. For those of you who follow these debt issues quite closely. That name, Carrie, may sound familiar to you. Of course, that is the home of Professor Deborah Braudigam, who has been discussing and researching these issues in an African context for many, many years now. This new report was written by Umesh Moramudali, who is a lecturer at the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka, where he focuses on public finance and political economy. Also, Talina Panduawala, who is the head of economic research at the private economic advisory firm Frontier Research, also based in Colombo in Sri Lanka. 
a good evening to both of you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be joining. Thank you very much, Eric. Happy to be here. Talina, let's start with you. You titled the report Separating Myth from Reality. Let's kind of give us an overview now of what were some of the myths you were trying to address and what were some of the realities. Very briefly, lay that out for us. Thanks, Eric. Um, so one myth and, you know, what we, you know, and the starting point for us in the paper um, was in terms of how much of Sri Lanka's public external debt was owed to China. Um, because when we look at the data and when we look at how the discourse around those numbers has been, we've seen that um, the most quoted in media and in discourse, you know, in social media is that Sri Lanka owes about 10 to 15 percent of uh, public external debt to China. But when we dig into the numbers, we realize that it was about actually close to 20%. And eventually for N2021, um, we came up with a number of 19.6%. Um, and that is one of the key, uh, you know, um, ones where we are starting points for us in terms of separating, you know, the myths from realities in terms of the numbers, the debt numbers. Um, and we thought that was a very important thing to clarify because there's also you know, alongside this, you know, China debt, na debt trap narrative, there's also this narrative about hidden debt. Um, and the moment, you know, you have, you know, the number goes above that, you know, popularly dis discussed 10 to 15%, um, then you have these claims of, you know, China has, he has hidden debt to Sri Lanka, um, and that's now coming out. And we wanted to really clarify, look, where this debt is and that the state institutions in Sri Lanka have been keeping track of this, these debt numbers, have been recording them. It's just that it's a complicated process of, you know, of where they're recorded. And for someone who is new to the topic, who's looking at Sri Lanka from the outside, it's not always easy to find out those numbers because the way Sri Lanka, some of Sri Lanka's public institutions have been recording them um, and some of Sri Lanka's practices in, in terms of doing that. Um, so that is a big um, chunk of, uh, you know, the clarification we wanted to bring out in terms of the debt numbers. Mesh, let's step back for a moment. You, you've been following this, this unfolding crisis for several years. And while you were working on this, on this particular project, you know, Sri Lanka itself started kind of entering into higher and higher levels of debt distress. So I wonder if you could just give us an idea of like how, how Sri Lankan society has been impacted by this crisis. Uh, well, this is by far the worst economic crisis that Sri Lanka has been grappling with since the independence. We gained independence in 1948 from the British. And since then, this is the, this is the worst economic crisis. How it, how it has impacted people is like, I'll, I'll give few anecdotal evidence. Few months ago, we had power cuts ranging from 10 to 12 hours a day, which means for the most part of the day, Sri Lanka didn't have power. People couldn't work, people couldn't you know, go out, or hospitals couldn't function, and many more others. And Sri Lanka didn't have fuel. There were many fuel queues, fuel were rationed. Fuel is still rationed, but fuel were rationed in a much more serious way a few months ago. This really you know, affected the people, and then that also turned into a political crisis. People were very unhappy about the fact that the government cannot provide the basic necessities. People couldn't get even cooking gas, you know. You can't cook, you don't have electricity, you can't work. It, the, literally, the everyday life was becoming a living hell. So at that point, the people, you know, came to uh, streets and they started protesting and it, it, it really went to the point where the, the president was forced to resign. 
Prime Minister was forced to resign. You know, those who follow Sri Lanka would know that Rajapaksha family has been uh, in power for many, many years, and uh, they were really taken out of the power because of the largely because of the economic crisis. Because the frustration really came out to the point where people really went and you know uh, asked president to resign. They came in numbers and sort of attacked the president office, prime minister's office, and then finally president's. Uh, uh, president secretariat as well, and that was took over. So, so it it has been quite a difficult era for Sri Lanka, and still Sri Lanka are struggling. For example, even now we don't have enough fuel as much as we'd have liked to. And currently, as as I'm speaking, there are power cuts in the country, so two and a half hour power cuts per day right now. And of course, it has reduced, and we are all, we are at the risk of increasing this to six hours in upcoming year as predicted by the power and energy minister and then the cost of living has increased the many people has lost the job so so it has been quite a ride uh, last few months and still 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 the crisis is uh, there so Talina Umesh laid out the crisis and the escalation of the crisis that's brought us to this moment a lot of people have put the fault at the Rajapaska family for borrowing so much to the point where the country just got buried in it Let's focus our attention on the Chinese part. There's a lot of debt from lots of different sources. The key finding in your report and what got all the headlines is what you talked about, how it was double the amount than previously reported. I want to get into that later on. But put the Chinese debt into context of the other creditors. So we, again, have a sense of what the context is and the the lay of the land is. So we have other bilateral creditors, namely India and Japan, We also have multilateral creditors, and then there are private creditors and there are domestic creditors. Can you give us the context of how all those fit together and where the problems arose in terms of the collapse of the debt problem? Thanks, Eric. So this is exactly a point where, you know, Professor Deborah, actually one of her key contributions in, you know, guiding us was she was like, look, you guys are really digging into the China and, you know, the details locally. Let's zoom out put Chinese lending in the context of the other lending that Sri Lanka has taken on from the mid-2000s onwards. Um, That is, you know, especially from that 2004p point that the Rajapaksa family came into power. Um, So we essentially looked at uh, numbers starting from 2000 itself, at which point, you know, China was less than 1% of Sri Lanka's public external debt. Sri Lanka's debt at that point was mostly to the bilateral and multilateral lenders, mostly on concessional terms. And a lot of that debt was taken over the 1970s, 80s, and 90s to carry out concessional infrastructure projects such as hydropower dams, irrigation, uh, and certain other rural, you know, kind of, you know, uh, poverty alleviation programs, etc. But a key event happened in 1997 when Sri Lanka graduated from a low-income country to a a low-middle-income country. Um, And that meant that over the next few years, the multilaterals and bilaterals reduced the access of Sri Lanka to concessional financing. So by the mid-2000s, the Sri Lankan government needed to find alternatives um, to finance their increasing political ambitions of doing a very infrastructure-led growth model. And that was something that was embedded in Mahindra Rajapaksa's Mahindra Chintana political manifesto that was in his presidential election for 2005. It was infrastructure for uh, expressways, um, for a coal power plant, for the Hambantota port project, a very key project in the Mahindra Chintana, um, a second you know, international airport. These kinds of infrastructure projects were a very core part of his political manifesto. But he needed the financing 
financing for it and the multilaterals and the bilaterals weren't going to give him concessional finance anymore. Uh, Sri Lanka's access was reducing. Um, and at the same time, he was also going through the escalation of the civil conflict. So that was also creating complications of getting financing from the traditional partners because there were concerns about human rights and all of that. So they found two alternatives. One is accessing export credit from bilateral countries, especially China became a big partner, but other, other bilaterals also, bilaterals export credit agencies also gave access to export credits. The other financing they found was uh, commercial lending in the terms of accessing the global capital markets. So the one thing they did in 2007 was starting to borrow international sovereign bonds or euro bonds. And that's what precipitated the current crisis, right? Was the, the bonds coming due, not the bilateral debt as much, correct? Yes. Um, so the bonds from about 2016, 17 onwards, we started having a lot of annual repayments coming due on the ISBs, right? They were maturing, so we had to pay the principal, and that's about, you know, one billion every year. So that means we also need, it's vital to go out and issue new sovereign bonds to refinance the maturing ones. So between 2016 and 2019, we actually accessed a, uh, an IMF program to ensure that we can be on that path to retain access to international sovereign bonds and refinance the maturing ones. And at one point, uh, the international sovereign bonds accounted for about 40% of uh, public external debt. No, Mesh, you, you, you make the point in the, in the report that there is no hidden debt, you know, because there's been a, there's been a lot of, a lot of um, discussion in, in relation to Chinese debt about off-book debt, um, you know, over the, over the last year or so. And, and you make the point that you didn't find kind of intentionally hidden debt. But at the same time, you also, you also find that whereas many people thought that, that China's, like China's share of, of Sri Lankan external debt hovers around 10 to 15 percent, you know, similar to Japan and India's shares, that actually the, the more realistic number is 19.6 is percent. So that difference, if it, if it weren't, if it wasn't a hidden debt, what, like, how do we account for that difference? This is largely due to the two reasons. One, uh, so let me go back and explain how people come up with this 10% number. So Sri Lanka has few entities that handle the public debt, particularly the foreign public debt. Right, so one one institution is what we call the External Resource Department, which is a which is a department in the Ministry of Finance uh, in Colombo. Now, this department handles the government foreign public debt. Uh, so they have a classification saying, okay, this is how much you owe to each country. So they are not really focusing on the debt that uh, the government uh, debt that the state-owned enterprises owe to uh, foreign lenders. So. In their classification, you have 10% of Sri Lanka's foreign debt is owed to China. Now, in that classification, they have clearly mentioned that this does not include as state-owned enterprise debt. Now, what happened in around 2013-14 was there were few big loans that the Sri Lankan government had taken for infrastructure projects. Uh, one uh, was for the power plant, Putlam power plant, as Selina mentioned. Then many loans were taken for Hambandata port, then there was a loan taken for Mattale airport. So three big chunk of Chinese loans all, all were from uh, China Exim Bank. At the end of the day, all these assets are actually owned by the state-owned enterprise. So Sri Lankan government used this loophole to transfer this debt from central government debt to state-owned enterprise debt. So by doing that, they could report less public debt to GDP 
uh, ratio number. So it's not really hidden that debt was transferred to the books of the state-owned enterprise, which still the all all the state-owned enterprises have to report to the parliament and uh, to other committees such as committee of public enterprise, etc. Right. So this ten percent number does not include the state-owned enterprise debt. Now this state-owned enterprise debt uh, account for a large chunk that are obtained from the China Exim Bank. So that once you add that number, this ten jump to fifteen. Now let me tell the other part of the story is the in the classification of the this external resource department they have what we call market borrowings by market borrowings you mean you you know you call bids either international sovereign bonds or syndicated loans you know foreign currency term financing facility uh, you call call it both now there were certain uh, some loans that were obtained by China Development Bank. One one loan we obtain uh, one one billion loan of foreign currency term finance invested we obtain in two thousand eighteen. Another five hundred million in two thousand twenty, and another five hundred million and a two hundred million all uh, around two point two billion altogether from China Development Bank. Now this debt to China Development Bank is categorized under the market borrowing because essentially at the start Sri Lanka went to the market it is and they selected China Development Bank as the commercial borrower right so those two debt because those two debts are classified differently a lot of people thought that okay this graph says 10% uh, so they are they, then Sri Lanka's debt to China is only 10% whereas ERD you know, the external resource department which I must say has been very helpful for us whenever we submit the information request and data request they had they they provided us with all the data we just had to ask the right and specific questions from them so they they have provided the data and they have given the necessary classifications and they have just done it differently because when you are looking at that number just looking at that number you went to conclusion that chinese debt is 10% so that is how we went from technically 10% to 19.6% let me just see if i understand everything you were saying just so we can clarify it so there was a there was no hidden debt but the way that the debt was classified either by the government looking at bilateral loans only not paying attention to what the state-owned enterprises did. You guys said, well, there's one bucket of loans that the government owns. There's another bucket of loans to the Chinese that state-owned enterprises in Sri Lanka. You combine those two together. Then there's also the types of loans. There's the commercial lending, which is at a higher rate that the China Development Bank was doing. And then there's also the concessional loans that come from places like the China Exim Bank, and those two had not necessarily been put together. And all of that together comes out to 19.6%. Is that is that correct? Did I summarize that properly? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, let me just add something to this. Okay, you didn't find any hidden debt, but the folks over at Aid Data in the United States at William & Mary College, they came out with a report back in September of this year, which said that China has been issuing what they're calling rescue loans or rescue lending. They listed Sri Lanka as among the major recipients of these loans, and that totaled since 2017, according to aid data, at $32.83 billion. Now, they said at aid data that these are off-book loans, they're very secretive, and the purpose of these loans is to help prevent borrowing countries who are in debt distress from collapsing. They also said that loans have been issued to Pakistan and Argentina, among a number of other countries. 
Did your research account for some of these loans that ADATA discovered? I'm not exactly sure what ADATA was referring to, but what the so-called rescue lending, I would say I, I, I assume that they were referring to some of these foreign currency term financing facilities or what we call the syndicated loans provided by the China Development Bank. Because these are, these are not project lending. These are direct money, like they're just, it's, it's very much similar to a euro bond, except the maturity structure is different. You, you pay this in installments, you get a grace period, and you have a much lower interest than euro bond. So, I mean, technically speaking, a syndicated loan from CDB uh, has been a better deal for Sri Lanka than euro bond. So, we, as I mentioned earlier, we took one of those loans to assist balance of payment support in 2018, another one in 2020, government call it an extension of the 2018 loan, and then another loan in 2021, and also a little bit of an addition to that in 2021, September or October. So these are not really classified as project loans, and these are not really classified as bilateral lending, as I mentioned before. But these are recorded. These are recorded as market borrowings because you actually technically went to the market, you called bids, and they were including Indian banks and several other banks banks which submitted their bids and then based on that sub, uh, based on the bids Sri Lanka decided to go with the China Development Bank and because you went to the market you categorize this as the market borrowing so this all 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 are clearly recorded and uh, it's just that it's recorded differently so we didn't find any evidence to say like this loan is not really recorded and uh, and uh, all, all, all actually were there very much discussed in Parliament. We, in fact, were able to obtain the cabinet papers that were submitted uh, requesting the China Development Bank lending. Talina, you show that, that a lot of this needs to be seen in the context of the dominance of international sovereign, sovereign bonds you know, in, in the current Sri Lankan debt crisis. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what they are. And then also, like, why did they have such a kind of such a big role in the, in, in the current debt crisis? And how, how is that part of it being, of the crisis being dealt with at the moment? Thanks, Robert. Yes, that's, that's important. So the international sovereign bonds um, that were first issued in 2007, while how they operate is that um, the first 2007 loan is actually a five-year bond. Um, and we have semi-annual interest payments on that. Uh, every six months, uh, interest payments are paid on that. And when it matured in 2012, we had to we had to pay, it was a $500 million loan. So the entire principal payment on that 2012 loan had to be repaid in one go. So that meant our external reserves, if we weren't able to refinance that, would be depleted by $500 million to ensure that repayment happens on that particular um, day on which uh, we are supposed to repay it. So that's a very big refinancing kind of repayment risk that comes through, right? Um, and that's been the case um, throughout. But luckily, until uh, 2020, uh, 2020, 2021, we had market access to be able to go out into the markets and issue new international sovereign bonds and repay the maturing ones, right? Regardless of the interest costs, we were able to do that because we retained access. But in November of 2019, um, the new government that came in at that point did a very large and, uh, let me use the word, ridiculous uh, tax cut that ruined our fiscal, um, fiscal numbers. And with the COVID impact also coming in, in mid-2020, the credit rating agencies started to downgrade our credit ratings. And we lost access to the market to be able to raise new sovereign bonds. But we were having maturities of sovereign bonds in 2020, 2021, and 2022 continuously, right? At least a billion a year. 
Um, and that meant we were going to be repaying this from our foreign reserves because we can't refinance them now. So we are using our reserves, which also need to be you know, used for you know, supporting imports at a time when there is not an ability to go and borrow new, newly. Um, so because the ISP repayments are, are, are foreign reserves are coming over depleting quite fast. And it's in January of 2022, when our reserves were down to about $3 billion, um, the government decided to repay the $500 million international sovereign bond that was maturing in January 2022, uh, depleting further our reserves. Um, and that meant that by about March, we were essentially at a net zero level in terms of our reserves um, on, a, on a usable reserves perspective. And that is what eventually forced us to um, uh, announce a suspension on our external debt repayments on the 12th of April of uh, this year. Uh, and the repayments on the ISBs, which were one time, one or, you know, that to be done on a particular day and a very large principal payment on their maturity was a big factor in terms of uh, this happening. Because the other loans that the bilaterals and even China are given, they're repaid in smaller amounts over a longer period of time compared to the ISBs, so the international sovereign bonds. So the international sovereign bonds puts a much more stress uh, in terms of refinancing and management of our foreign currency reserves compared to other, other uh, loans um, uh, in our external debt. Okay, let's shift our attention now to the port of Hambandota. This is a big part of your report. Again, you are critical in helping to debunk a lot of the myths around the port. But I, I just want to start with the very basics because there's something that I don't understand and I've always been curious about. The Port of Colombo, and I'm looking on Google Maps right now, is 266 kilometers away from the Port of Ambandota. And the Port of Colombo, as according to Marine Insight, which I don't know who they are, but I'm assuming they're an industry publication, ranks the Port of Colombo as the most efficient port in South Asia and the Indian subcontinent, third in the Indian Ocean Rim, and 22nd worldwide. This is a really solid port. Okay. Why, for the love of what's good in this world, did the Sri Lankan government decide that it needed to borrow more than a billion dollars to build a new port 266 kilometers away from one of Asia's best performing ports? Umesh, help us understand the logic of what led up to, to this loan. Was this something, as the critics contend, that the Chinese pushed on the Sri Lankans, or is this something that the Rajapaska family said, we want to do because it's in our hometown? This makes no sense to anybody. Help us understand the motivations for what led up to the port of Amandota. Well, uh, let me go back further, you know, uh, around late 90s, early 2000s, during which, Mahindra, during which period Mahindra Rajapaksha was the fisheries minister. And... Uh, during his tenure as a fisheries minister, Hambantu report was one of the things that uh, he was working on. You know, that was, uh, I wouldn't say it's the first time that popped up, but like he was sort of trying to follow it. And of course, he's from Hambantu area itself. And as Tilina mentioned before, lot of votes come to Rajapakshas, or rather their political narratives have been built heavily based on their ability to drive the infrastructure development as well, in addition to the war. That's, uh, so they, they, they really insist on that. It is very clear when you look at their election manifestos. 
Now, when Rajapaksha came to power in 2005, what we clearly see is that they had a need to build the Hambantota port. It, I don't think it was Chinese pushing it. China, of course, gave them the opportunity. China facilitated the request of Rajapaksha's, which which was not really possible before. And Rajapaksha, of course, had a much, you know, the, he had reason to pursue Hambantota port. Why? What was the reason? Help us understand what that is. One thing is that largely because that is his hometown. And if you actually take a look at like how much money uh, insanely spent on developing his hometown. Uh, for example, he actually built a, a new airport, which was also funded by China Exim Bank, quite closer to Hambantota. It actually doesn't make any sense to uh, d- develop an airport, particularly you have a, uh, another airport. That is just lunacy. Yes, and no- not only that, actually. So he built a cricket stadium in Hambantota. You know, which cricket is a, the the most popular sport in Sri Lanka, for those who don't know. And it means a lot. So, so you can see that how he serves the electorate. And then also he extended the uh, expressway to Hambantota and further. There was not much of a need of doing this. And also the southern railway line, that also he extended through his electorate. This is bonkers. I mean, just crazy how much money they were spending on his hometown. So... Is this just corruption? Is it politics? Is he buying off? What's the motivation? Is it vanity? Stupidity? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, one thing is it's for politics, for the votes. Uh, he's obsessed with gaining the electoral support in his area. Secondly, yes, corruption too. But, uh, you know, the corruption has been involved in the Sri Lankan politics for ages. But uh, for this very specific projects it's largely because he wanted to show that he's he's a man who can deliver for the southern part of the sri lanka because he came from the southern part of the sri lanka it is very clear when you look at the videos of uh, starting hamandu report and he was very obsessed with uh, declare the port open just before uh, one of the elections and it is very clear that how much he insist on it and who actually also the people he had put uh, put in charge of Sri Lanka Port Authority, his close allies. You know, this, this means that it is um, very much a part of his uh, political agenda. The story that is told, the kind of like shorthand story that's told about Haman Pota is essentially that they took out this big loan from the Chinese, then they, they couldn't repay them, uh, they couldn't repay the loan, and then um, and then in order to do, to, in order to kind of deal with that, that kind of shortfall, uh, they ended up granting a 99-year lease to a, to a Chinese company in order to to take essentially quote unquote take over the port and then also also kind of lease an, an industrial zone next to it. What what does what are the mistakes in that story? So this story essentially says that Sri Lanka couldn't pay, so therefore we exchanged the port for the debt. That is firstly it's wrong. Sri Lanka did not have any troubles paying Hambantota the port loans. We have taken five loans to construct Hambantota Port, including if we include the bunkering one as well. And the debt servicing cost of these loans in 2017, in the year that the port was leased to China, that amounts to only 2.4% of total foreign debt repayments of Sri Lanka. So that wasn't really a problem at all. So we were not struggling to pay Hambantota Port loans. That was not the problem. Problem was, as Tilina mentioned, we were having other balance of payment issues, largely because of we have to repay the euro bonds that were maturing during that particular period. Right. So it's two different transactions. The There were no debt written off 
because of this port loan port lease was something separate people somehow managed to link these transactions together and made it one and build their own narrative and of course there are many other narratives that are aligned to this you know saying that china took 15 uh, 15000 acres of land around the port that is also not true the basic idea is sri lanka had a balance of payment issue and the lease is separate from the loan right so that is that is essentially the basic idea two different transactions for which was done for 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 a very three specific reasons one because it gave sri lanka money because you needed money for the government government was not having enough budgetary uh, finances we were running on a physical deficit so when you lease the port you get money so that money goes to the government sri lanka was achieved to was able to achieve primary balance the subsequent year one big reason was uh, non government non non tax revenue uh, actually increased and then you had a balance of payment crisis because of this port lease sri lanka got dollars and then finally by leasing this port to china merchants sri lanka was able to reduce the loss of the sri lanka port authority because this was a huge burden for sri lanka port authority they were keep making losses and the government has to give them money and the moment you transfer this to china merchant port it's their business you no longer have to bear the losses it's actually like three birds in one stone for sri lanka kobus this is so messed up that there's nothing true about the story and there's an irony here <laughs> that they turned over the port back to the chinese in order to pay the euro bonds not because they were struggling to pay the port that's a very convenient fact that is left out of a lot of the stories on this you know umesh tilina this is hysterical because what you're talking about is just completely different from everything that we know about the story based on the memes that have been out there for the past 5 or 6 years. So, wow. Telina, in the contracts, there was also suspicions that there were asset seizure clauses. And this has been a concern of Chinese loans and ports in places like Kenya where there were concerns also that should the Kenyan government fail to pay the loans on the standard gauge railway, they would seize the port of Mombasa. Your colleague at the China Africa Research Initiative who you wrote this paper for Deborah Baudogam has been on the forefront of debunking this now you have debunked it in Sri Lanka tell us more about the asset seizure clauses or if there were any in the China Exim Bank loans for Habendota So first of all we were uh, very grateful for the again the Ministry of Finance's external resources department for you know allowing us access uh, and you know to these loan agreements the five loans that Umesh mentioned earlier that were taken to build the Hambantu port uh, complex um that they gave us access um, to you know go through these and you know give, give us these loan agreements to go through when the request when we put in a right to information request um and that's the key thing for the reason why this research has been enabled is back in i think 2016 or 17 we had this right to information act under which we can write to uh, public institutions and request for this information to be provided to uh, us as citizens of sri lanka and that's what's enabled us to do all of this and on and speaking into um, um the the specifics that you asked we did not find specifics of you know asset seizure clauses or uh, having liens on the asset, uh, on the assets that are created through the loans or some kind of collateral uh, the port as a collateral 
collateral if the loan is to be not uh, not repaid. We didn't find any such closes in either of the five port loans. Um, the first loan that was taken in 2007 uh, and the subsequent loans that were taken from 2012 onwards, we didn't find any such close uh, in the five uh, loan agreements. Mesh, I, I wonder if you could do well, both of you actually, if you if you could just reflect a little bit on your your perspective on the debt negotiation renegotiation process as we've seen it so far. Like where, you know, like the as as Eric mentioned, there's there's a lot more attention being paid to the role of China in 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 it than in to, than to many of the other actors, including bilateral lenders like Japan and, and India. And international um, sovereign bondholders, um, you know, which are fr- frequently all over the world, but also particularly kind of also legally located in, in, in Western countries frequently. So I was wondering, like, from the inside of Sri Lanka, like, what, you know, what, what is your perspective on, on uh, the debt renegotiation process at the moment? Like, maybe Umeshko first and then Tilina can follow up. We are actually still in the early stages of the debt restructuring process. And uh, as you mentioned, it is clear that China has to play a big role because they obviously, you know, have like one-fifth of the debt, uh, one-fifth of Sri Lanka's uh, foreign debt. Now, the, the, the where this gets complicated is that, you know, as you mentioned very early in the podcast, Japan and India comes into the picture. India in particular has their own interest with Sri Lanka and they were not really quite happy with significant increase of Chinese involvement in Sri Lanka. So they would be very uh, closely looking at what China agrees into. And from Zambia experience, we know that China is not really fond of principal haircuts. I mean, the scholars who have been talking about Chinese banks, they also say that Chinese banks do not like principal haircuts. They prefer maturity extensions. Now, for Sri Lanka, this has not yet been finalized. And we are still in the process of negotiating and we we haven't reached, I would say, anywhere in terms of that as of yet. Now, I think this this, this going to be a little bit complicated also because Sri Lanka had borrowed from different Chinese entities and different Chinese loans. Tilina can add on to this. We have borrowed from China Exim Bank and as well as China Development Bank. Now, how is China Development Bank going to restructure their debt would be vastly different to what Exim Bank would want because these are very different loans. As you mentioned uh, and explained, China Development Bank has provided different kind of lending. These are not project lending. And CDB also had provided project lending as well. So we still need to figure out how, how these complexities are uh, going to be resolved. So so that's that's going to be consensus within China and within those institutions that come together and uh, finalize this, uh, uh, the debt the restructuring negotiations. But for me, the biggest stumbling block is that there are, there are you know, countries uh, that are with contradicting interest that is more than a debt problem that is also a geopolitical problem particularly for Sri Lanka because the because of the India's involvement and there's likelihood that the negotiations might drag longer uh, because if you take a look at Zambia a country like India doesn't really have or, or Suriname they don't really have much of a geopolitical interest but but for India they have huge geopolitical interest uh, on Sri Lanka and their ties goes way back and they're very politically involved in, in Sri Lanka to the point where like one of the constitutional amendments in Sri Lanka is actually uh, uh, you know forced upon the country by India rather rather you know suggested by uh, India so there's very close ties with that and there's there's going to be a very geopolitical uh, problem doing you know. 
I mean, the reason why China's role in terms of uh, what China's approach to debt restructuring is critical right now for us is that we are at the stage where we are waiting. We've gotten the IMF staff agreement and we need to move to IMF board approval so that we can have an IMF fund program and thereby have access to other multilaterals also being able to lend to us new. And for the IMF to provide board approval, we of course have the you know prior actions on the domestic side. The government is meeting, and the government's done a lot of um, you know domestic kind of changes. Fiscal side, taxes have been increased, electricity prices have been increased. The domestic side is happening. But the other side of it is that we need financial assurances, financing assurances from the bilateral creditors uh, primarily uh, and start good faith negotiations with the uh, private creditors. So the good faith negotiations with the private creditors are ongoing, the debt advisors are proceeding with that. And on the bilateral side, we are having the negotiations, but we need some kind of consensus among the bilaterals on what their approach is. So that consensus is taking time. We've seen that in Suriname and Zambia, that it took time for that initial okay. We are okay for this country to be in areas to us as bilaterals. The IMF can go forth to, you know, on its funding program. But the issue that's popped up now is that Suriname's program has so far just essentially go, gone off the rails because none of those financing assurances, especially from China, and then the good faith negotiations with the private creditors, the ISB holders, none of them have gone anywhere. So the IMF can't proceed with Suriname's program. And that is that means that for Sri Lanka's program to start off, everyone's now expecting a bit more details from the bilaterals, including China, India, and of course the others, to give some details before we move ahead to the IMF program. And that is causing delays because China, internally, we don't see that they've actually come to, you know, what their consensus of their consensus approach as these different institutions that Umesh mentioned, the China Exim Bank, the China Development Bank, and some of the other commercial creditors, which are not major in Sri Lanka, but quite major in the African countries, um, for them to have that unified approach to what this debt restructuring is, how what is our standard approach, how much of you know at least maturity extensions and how much of interest rate reductions do we do, even if principal haircuts is not possible, because bilaterals usually do not give principal haircuts on their debt. Um, so at least that uh, you know maturity and and interest rate reduction, measured extension and interest rate reductions would be an approach to take. But they need to come to that consensus and that is taking time. Um, so that is a big delay and um, and that's and that's meant that the delay means a lot of space for a lot of speculation and uh, to you know, feed in. Uh, and that's happening quite a lot. And even domestically, we are seeing kind of, you know, narratives of why isn't China being helpful now when it's been, you know, it's supposed to be a friend for such a long time. Why can't it, you know, be helpful right now? So that kind of, you know, conversation is going on. Um, and that doesn't help to get China on the, on, on the table in good terms if we are being antagonistic, uh, antagonistic to uh, the Chinese. And that might explain why the messaging last week coming out of the foreign ministry from both Zhao Lijian responding to that question and then also Mao Ning, the other spokesperson who said China's calling for joint efforts to ease Sri Lanka's debt burden might be a signal that they're ready to start engaging into a multilateral process and they don't want to be 
blamed for holding up the process. Again, that's speculation. I don't know. But it was just interesting to me that twice in one week, Sri Lanka came up in the foreign ministry briefing, which is unusual for that. The report, everybody, is evolution of Chinese lending to Sri Lanka since the mid-2000s, separating myth from reality. If you follow these issues, if you've been following the debt crisis in Africa and in the Americas and other parts of the world, this is an absolutely essential read because it really debunks a key part part of the narrative about asset seizures. And the port of Amadota is, again, you know, that is patient zero in all of this. So it was written by Umesh Muradali, who is a lecturer at the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka, where he focuses on public finance and political economy. Also, Talina Panduawala, who is the head of economic research at the private economic advisory firm Frontier Research, also in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Gentlemen, thank you both for shedding some light on this. I know both of you are active on Twitter, fighting the good fight to debunk a lot of the bad information that's out there. Talina, where can people find you if they want to follow what you're doing on Twitter? I think it's at Talina Kalhara on Twitter, yeah. Um, okay. Go as Tilna Panduavala, I think, full name. Don't worry about the details. I'll put a link in the show notes. Umesh, do you know your Twitter handle? Yes, it's my name, Umesh Moramudali. You just type the name without any spaces. That's me. Wonderful. You'll see links to both of their Twitter handles in the show notes, as well as a link to the report. Talina, Umesh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for having us. Kobus. I just can't believe what I just heard. I mean, I'm kind of speechless about the whole thing because the narrative is so far removed from the reality. It's ridiculous. And really, the next time you see anybody talk about the Port of Ambandota and you ask them and you say, have you read this report published by Kerry? And if they say no, forget them. Just walk away. It's not even worth the time. Okay. So it's hysterical to me, again, that they had no problem paying back the loan on that port. The problem was they weren't able to pay the euro bonds. And here we are back again at the euro bonds and at the private creditors. Same issue that we face in Africa. Okay, And there's been no movement, no budging on that, and nothing coming out of the U.S. and Europe saying that they're going to work with their legislatures to ease some of the fiduciary laws on debt repayments from private creditors that are governed by New York and U.K. law. Nothing. And that is just, it's crazy to me. And the other point that really stood out for me was how responsive the Sri Lankan government was to their requests. This should be an example for every developing country. Scratch that. Every country. That citizens and researchers can go to their government and say, let me see the loans. Let me see the terms. Let's see what's under the hood here. And as far as I know, the sun came up in Colombo the next day after they released the documents. So this should put the Kenyan government to shame for what they've done over the SGR loan. Shame. It's absurd because Kenya is violating their own laws. And all these other developing countries should look at what Sri Lanka has done and said, yep, that's what we need to do. Because when you put sunshine on this, you at least know what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, many times in many podcasts, we've made the call for kind of radical transparency, you know, from global South governments, from regional organizations, like calling for all loan contracts to be published, and they should. I think this this, this whole kind of crisis makes that clear. But it's also, you know, in relation to your earlier point, I think it's true. It's like the thing is, is I'm not a finance expert. So I, I really kind of come to all of this from a place of, you know, how does a layperson kind of understand this? And 
as a layperson, I've now read, you know, kind of many, many, many pages of Financial Times, from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, you know, kind of all of this kind of mainstream coverage of this. And it is striking for me how frequently, like, one would read these accounts from very, very high-level financial journalists, quoting very, very high-level financial officials from Western countries, where no one even acknowledges that Western-held <laughs> bonds are even an issue, are even part of the conversation. You know, kind of where, where one would read page after page, article after article, just simply assuming that, oh, China's the only big problem here. Like, you know, if only China would cooperate with these people, then all of these poor little countries would be able to move forward. And, you know, this is not a kind of a, a, an instance of whataboutism, you know, to justify China's position, because China has a lot of problems in China's position. But for Western officials and Western kind of reporters to really downplay the role of Western you know, kind of like private financing institutions and all of this is really problematic, I think. And it's something that strikes me particularly in relation to how all of these poor countries are going to do anything about climate change, you know, kind of like what their financing options are open to them, you know, and, and the, the, the fact that the role of international private capital is so complex and has so many pitfalls for these countries and that these pitfalls are then not addressed at all by Western officials, that's a bad combination. No, and, and to your point on the media, which is very interesting, how they will repeat the Sri Lanka Habandota line so casually as if it's a fact. And let me just quote you from back in, oh, this is Financial Times back in January. This was a really big report published by Catherine Hill, who's the Taipei correspondent, and David Pilling, who's the Africa editor at the FT. China applies breaks to Africa lending. That was the headline of the story. Then deep into the story, they have a line here, and this is, I think, what you're talking about. And I'm going to quote here. They point to Chinese control of Sri Lanka's Hambandota deepwater port through a 99-year lease as evidence of Beijing's presumed designs on strategic assets in Africa. Okay. That's just yeah, repeating... That, that line has had legs. Like we've, we've been chasing that line since, since then. <laughs> That's right. But the fact that reporters as esteemed as Catherine and David put that into their story just gives it so much credibility. And yet, as we heard today... It, by the way, these two researchers, as incredible as they are, this information has been out there in some form or another for quite some time because we've been saying this. So this isn't like the first time that People knew about this when this report came out. They gave it shape and definition that we hadn't seen before, but a lot of this had been known prior. And again, Deborah Braudigam has been a leader on this at Cary. And so when David Pilling starts repeating some of this stuff in his reports in the FT, which has this immense credibility in the financial media space, then others follow that example. So again, I think when we see these references by the likes of David Pilling and others, we need to call them out on it because it's just not accurate. They need to then publish corrections on it. Now, again, all journalists, me included, we make mistakes. Okay, sure, fine. But now we have enough information out there with this report that's published on the Kerry website. It was covered by Bloomberg, by FT. Everybody knows that this report is there. If you want to just use a freaking Google search, you can find it. So there's no excuse now for this Hambandota line to have any legs after this. None. Now, again, Chinese lending is a whole bunch of problems. We're not trying to defend Chinese lending here. We're not trying to excuse it. We're not trying to kind of rationalize it, do whataboutism. We're just trying to point out that what Tilina and Umesh have uncovered 
indicates that the narrative as it exists now that is propagated by India and in many Western countries by both politicians and media is just not accurate. It just isn't accurate. So to me, the great contribution that they've made is by, again, the transparency and putting facts out there for all of us to see. And then also, in the case of Sri Lanka, the government made some bad decisions. No, no, that, that's, that's, no, no, Kobus, that, they didn't make bad decisions. It's bizarre how bad that, and they deserve, at the end of the day, the Rajapaska family should be accountable for this. But at the same time, I think what this also shows is that poor countries, like formerly colonized poor countries, that are now facing, you know, not only the general kind of problem of trying to develop when you have no infrastructure, but also the much larger problem of trying to develop while you have no infrastructure when there's also a massive climate collapse coming, that these countries do not have enough options for financing. You know, it's just like, even if you make really good decisions as a small poor country and not falling into the pitfalls that Sri Lanka did, you still don't have many options. And that, just the kind of dearth of financing options for countries as they're facing this kind of completely out-of-the-box crisis kind of bearing down on them, that itself is such a scandal that I'm surprised, although not surprised, but still, you know, kind of like it's notable that it doesn't occupy more of a media attention, you know? Yeah, and the part of this story where the Chinese should be held accountable, I get the sense that they learned from their lesson here is that when the Rajapaska family came to the Chinese to say, we want to build a port 266 kilometers from one of the best performing ports in all of Asia, in fact, all of the world, the Chinese should have said, that's ridiculous. What a stupid idea. And we're never going to get our money back because that's way too much capacity for a country the size of Sri Lanka. So the Chinese and their lack of due diligence in evaluating these loans... I think is to blame. Now, one of the things that you will look at the trajectory of Chinese lending through the Belt and Road Initiative is that 2017 in many ways was the high watermark. And since 2017, it has just cratered off. And in many ways, I think that Hambandota for the Chinese was a sobering moment. And that's when I think that everything kind of changed. I think there was a big learning lesson for them. I think it was around that time that Xi Jinping sent in some of the anti-corruption kind of units to start cracking down. That's when they also started asking for stronger feasibility studies. And you kind of got the sense of like, Oof, we don't want to get into this again, because it all kind of wraps around that time. And so again, there is no direct line between Habendota and the cutoff in BRI spending or the demand for better feasibility reports. But at the same time, I think there was some correlation just based on my experience. I think that kind of accumulation of controversial projects that the Standard Gate Railway and so on, you know, kind of started started kind of raising concern in China. And, you know, what we also saw during the same stretch of years, and then the COVID shutdown, I think, to a large extent, like provided a kind of a reset period. But what we saw just before COVID is also the issuing of much, much harder kind of guidelines in terms of environmental, social and governance, you know, kind of standards for Chinese projects coming from the government and Chinese-led multilateral institutions. You know, all of that seems to be response to mistakes made. And I think my guess, and this is just a guess, is that I don't think we've seen the end of quote-unquote Belt and Road, however we understand the Belt and Road concept going into the 2020s. But, you know, whatever name that lands, lands under, I don't think we've seen the end of Chinese infrastructure spending. But once it kind of like picks up, once once the global economy kind of picks up and they have more space, also domestically, economically within China, I think one will see quite different terms, you know, of, of, of how this lending will work. And the kind of interactions between global South governments and Chinese authorities will, I think, probably change. 
And I have to admit that I am not very optimistic that Sri Lanka is going to emerge from this process in very good shape. I think Umesh was being quite diplomatic and scholarly when he was saying that China and India don't get along. And that's an overstatement of just, or an understatement of just enormous magnitude here. Let me just give you a quote that came out from our good friend uh, Tuvia Gehring, who is a researcher in Israel, and he follows Chinese academics and think tank discourse quite closely. And he's got an absolutely essential newsletter called Discourse Power that everybody should be signed up for. And he found a quote from Liu Zhongyi, who's the secretary general of the Research Center for China-South Asia Cooperation at the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies. And SIIS is one of China's leading international think tanks. And so, Liu, here's what he said, and just listen to the tone. As long as India doesn't make excessive demands or overuse the G20 and SCO summits that it'll host in 2023 to peddle its own agendas, China will support it. And then uh, he, Leo then applauded India for attempting to ease bilateral ties and correct here, quote unquote, its misguided China policy over the past two years. <laughs> okay. I mean, that does not bode well for that kind of tone coming out. And the thought of the Japanese, the Indians, and the Chinese sitting down in some kind of kumbaya moment to help you know, Sri Lanka out is, is far-fetched. I mean, it's been difficult in the Zambia context and the Ethiopia context, which are not anywhere near as politicized. But one cannot overstate and just exaggerate how tense the relationships are among these three countries. You know, two of those three countries are members of the Quad, right? that are really aggressive towards China. So it is hard to imagine. And we heard this a couple months ago from our China researcher, from Han Zhen, our China researcher, who was telling us that public opinion in China on social media is also not entirely favorable to a bailout or some kind of concessions in Sri Lanka. So there's domestic political pressure on the Chinese to maybe not give in too much, and again, to, to not take those haircuts. So lots of different angles to consider with this. But Kobus, again, I will not have a conversation with somebody, a serious conversation with somebody who talks about Habandota unless they've read this report. That's, that's my takeaway. I'll be citing this report for, for years to come. That's, yeah. that's for sure. So I am so glad we had a chance to do this. This is exactly what we try to do on this show. This is what we try and do every day in our daily news coverage, is to kind of uncover, lift up the rock and see what's underneath the rock. And that's what we found today in this show. We hope that you found it as enlightening as we did. You can get this delivered every single day into your inbox if you go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. We're just about to raise our rates next year just a smidge. We've had a, you know, a lot of, of demand, so we feel comfortable that we can raise our rates just a smidge. We want to uh, support this really growing international journalism organization that we've built. We've got editors now in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and we have a brand new climate editor who's just joined our team as well. We're thrilled to introduce you to Protus. Uh, very soon as well, who's going to be covering climate issues in Africa and in the global south as well with a, a strong Chinese focus. So all of that requires support. And we're just so grateful to our subscribers and our Patreon supporters, to all of you. Thank you so much for your support. If you, again, would like to join what we're doing and to get our newsletter and to access our site and to get transcripts of the podcast, once again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. 
Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.